The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome Welcome, to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be be brave, and be fearless, let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome Welcome, welcome. to the Data Gurus Podcast. I am so excited to have Adam Breslowski join me today on the Data Gurus Podcast. Adam is a managing partner and a member of Oberon's Management Committee at Oberon Securities, which is a middle market investment banking firm. Welcome, Adam. Good afternoon, Seema. How you doing? I'm doing great. Yourself? Good. And like, you know, I don't know what the right response is. Like, you don't want to be I too know. happy. You don't want to be too depressing. So I'm doing okay. I always figure nobody wants my baggage, so yeah, I know. we're all sort of auto-programmed to just say we're doing well, so I'm going to mean that as well as can be expected during a global pandemic. Yes, I think that's right. That's what I kind of say, too. It's been a completely strange experience over the last several weeks. I could say months now, I guess. Yeah, months. It's been 10 weeks, for me at least. Yeah, I invited you to the podcast for a specific reason. Obviously, we work together at Oberon Securities, but the projected loss in our industry is about $19 billion worldwide. That's huge. And when you think about it, that's all made up of the impact is these firms that operate in our industry. And what I'd love to do today is kind of provide, I don't even want to say prescriptive advice, but a framework of how people can actually think about how they operate their business, how they navigate their next steps. Just as a way of thinking, I think the initial shock's gone at this point, Uh and now people are really trying to marshal their resources and put together the game plan. What have you been seeing companies doing? So what you're describing is no way unique to the MR industry way. I mean, I'm not even going to pretend to be any sort of expert. I'm a generalist investment banker by trade, having grown up, sharpened my teeth in product groups like mergers and acquisitions and underwriting high yield bonds at larger investment banks. But you have over 25 plus years of experience. (laughs) That's true. So I've worked with all, you know, companies across the industry spectrum and, you know, I can definitely tell you, you know, that, uh, that this is, I think, the single most challenging capital markets environment or just operating environment for companies due to the fact that, you know, there are very few industries that have been spared from the carnage that has sort of hit companies due to the pandemic. And I would say, like, I'm seeing businesses that are seeing a decline of their top line from anywhere, I'd say in the like 10% range if like you're killing it and doing really well. So like more than 50%. So, you know, you've seen companies whose top lines have fallen off and that these are, you know, in a typical industry, a company that declined by 10% year over year would be considered to be, you know, really, really struggling. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like bottom 10%. 10% decline would probably equate to like bottom 10% performer of companies that, that I see. Now it's like the top 10%. And so, you know, worse yet, when, when companies are declining between 10 and 50% on the top line, you know, their fixed costs don't really decline. 
Uh, like the variable costs decline, but the fixed costs don't. So all of a sudden, a business that was making a few million dollars, you know, 10 weeks ago on an annualized basis is now losing money. Mm -hmm. So, but let's talk about the different types of companies, because I know there's some companies across all industries where COVID is almost, it's kind of a panacea, right, for a company that might have not operated well before the pandemic, and now is, you know, maybe cutting costs, laying off people, kind of cleaning up a little bit of their financials because they weren't really optimizing them before COVID. Have you seen situations like that come about? Yeah, I guess I would say what I'm seeing is companies that had any sort of struggle leading into the pandemic are really like, when you're seeing bankruptcy filings now, those are the types of companies. It's not as if like, you know, uh, J. Crew and Nima Marcus were like killing it before. You know, before the pandemic, yeah. right? They were struggling. They were, you know, getting, you know, losing customers sort of to online and to discounted retailers, specialty retailers. And so this was sort of the final nail in the coffin that, and then, you know, hopefully they're going to reorganize. I think that's the expectation for right. companies. But, you know, it did cause them to sort of file for bankruptcy. And, and there's some additional companies that are filing for bankruptcy that are expected to liquidate as opposed to restructure. Got it. And these are not businesses who all of a sudden started struggling during this time frame. So what I'm seeing is, you know, the companies that were struggling have basically thrown in the towel to some extent. Mm-hmm. And the companies who are performing may be doing some of those activities that you were just referencing. So it almost feels to me like even companies who are still performing and whose revenues might be flat to down 10%. Right. Those guys are still calling their vendors and saying, you look, I need a break on my rent. And, you know, they're calling every vendor. They, I have clients who are call, literally calling every vendor they have and who are, you know, achieving, you know, 10 to 20% savings on mm-hmm. their expenses. And they're fine. They probably got some PPP money as well. And they're weather the storm. Either weather the storm. And I think that some of them look, I mean, it's not as if the business is not compromised in some respects relative. It's not as if there haven't been negative repercussions, but I think companies like that are just relatively speaking, kind of sailing by and continuing to and those guys and they're also focusing we all have more time now mm-hmm. sort of dig into more strategic long-term initiatives mm-hmm. that I think well, there's a lot of companies that when we turn the corner on coronavirus will perform better than ever. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm highly confident of that based on, you know, what I'm seeing. I'm not sure exactly when that's going to be. That's when, true. When we'll get back to business as usual, it could be quite some time, but yeah. you know, it seems like, you know, there'll be many companies that are going to be uh, poised to be more successful than ever. Well, well, they'll be leaner, right? They'll be more flexible and they'll be more focused. And I think that yes. it's amazing what happens when in times of crisis, how laser focused, you know, a company and leadership can get to what really needs to get done. Okay, let's talk about bankruptcy versus liquidation. When does yeah. a company in your mind claim bankruptcy versus deciding I'm just going to liquidate all my assets. Right. So I guess I would bankruptcy, having been involved in in several bankruptcy cases over the years, and also just involved with restructurings that we've managed to get done outside of the bankruptcy process, which is a business owner's preference and an investment banker's uh, preference, when you can sort of marshal the will of the various stakeholders of a company to do so, which, inv- which involves sacrifice and cooperation on the part of the shareholders, typically the management team, 
creditors and the vendors, among others, you know, when you cannot avoid that, you're then faced with, you know, a filing. And, and basically, there's, you know, the two types of bankruptcies that people are most familiar with is one would be the Chapter 11 process, which is basically a restructuring of the company and its balance sheet versus a Chapter 7 case, which is a liquidation. They're both technically bankruptcies. Okay. One is, let's, let's use the word restructuring. So often that entails, you know, if I owned that business prior to filing, you know, oftentimes I'm not going to, unless I'm putting, you know, contributing new money and or additional assets that I own outside the company, I'm probably not going to come away controlling the business or right. having significant ownership thereafter. Usually the creditors, you know, the reason you're filing is that your creditors, you know, you're unable to pay them back. Protected so against that. You protect, where, right. You're protecting yourself against mm-hmm. you know, basically, you know, liquidating your company. Right. You know, and so by filing, you know, you may end up losing control. You likely will to your creditors who then may either, you know, operate the business. Typically creditors don't love to own and operate businesses. So they might see to sell assets or Mm -hmm. to, you know, to sell the stock of the company, which they'll come to own basically through an exchange, through the bankruptcy process, through an exchange of their debt for the equity of the business, or they'll accept a discount on their loan, you know, in exchange for some cash payment or maybe some stub residual debt piece that they hold either on a senior or subordinated basis. I mean, when you're going through a, a liquidation, I mean, that, that's really for a business where, you know, your structuring is a business whose capital structure is messed up. Right. Use the technical term. Yeah. Um, liquidations for a business whose underlying operations are messed up. Well, got it. So even if they had like no debt. Right. You can't find a way, let's say, to like make payroll. Mm-hmm. And so there's not, there, there aren't investors out there willing to continue to fund the business plan. And so at that point, for a, the decision is made that, the best thing a business can do is to basically sell off its assets. And by the way, this is something like the management team and equity owners almost never like to do. Right. They almost always come away with like next to nothing or nothing. Mm-hmm. Whatever liquidity you are able to, to get for those assets that you sell in a liquidation, go to pay off your creditors or vendors more times than not. So sometimes when you see distress, you know, you may look at, you know, let's say a, a bank or a creditor that says, hey, why don't we just sell off all the assets, knowing that they're going to get all their money back just by liquidating the assets of the company or nearly all of it, in, instead of trying to restructure. So sometimes creditors don't want to restructure because there's risk associated with restructuring for them that maybe they won't get paid. The creditors don't like risk. Right. They don't get paid to like risk, right? If, if right. the business quadruples, doubles, triples, whatever, all they're going to do is get their money back. Mm-hmm. So they are not, you know, they don't get a return for the risk. And so when they perceive a risk, they just want their money back. They want to get out, right? They just want to get out. But the shareholders want to keep playing because right. a liquidation is like 100% probability of a zero outcome for them. Whereas a restructuring, even if there's like a remote possibility and they're behind debt, you know, they're almost encouraged in some cases to feel like they can take a lot of risk. Right. They're sort of betting. They're not playing with that, their own money at that point. Yeah. That's the perception. Well, and as being investors or founders, I mean, you're inherently 
prone to risk, right? That's so, true. Yeah. So that's the mindset in that whole thing. Yeah, you um, foregone a job and a salary and right. for starting up a business. <laughs> that's and, right. And like things don't go well, nobody pays you anything, and the world owes you nothing. But if it do- if it does go well, then you have the opportunity to reap you know all the benefits of what the company generates, which right. is exciting. If you just have a job and you do your job really really well, well, they might give you a little bonus right. in addition to your to your salary, but it's not as uh, ups and downs of entrepreneurship or yeah, the ups and the ups yeah. in those cases, hopefully. But yeah. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about companies that are going to weather this storm. They were okay. They were kind of operating okay, you know, pre-COVID. They're hunkering down. They're doing exactly what you said in terms of, you know, negotiating with every vendor, cutting expenses, maybe got PPP, reduced salaries, payroll. Are you seeing a lot of those types of companies coming in and saying, listen, we're thinking we're going to go out and raise some capital in the next 60 days or 90 days, or we need to think about alternatives. What's their mindset as they go through this from your conversations you've had? Well, first of all, I'd say it's evolving rapidly, yeah. more rapidly than I've ever seen. So 10 okay. weeks ago, I was getting calls from business owners that were like really some great companies yeah. saying, hey, you know, I may be interested in raising some debt just yeah. to have some dry powder. Mm-hmm. And then PPP came along. And I didn't hear from them at, you know, yeah. money. <laughs> you can't beat PPP. You know, when they're thinking, but these business owners were saying to themselves, they've never seen financing where basically, you know, it's a short application that you submit and, you know, your ability to qualify is, is really solely based on number one, being able to, to demonstrate that your business has been somewhat negatively impacted. Yeah. That's sort of a vague standard, by the way, that the government set up for being able to, to have access to a PPP. Number two is, are you sort of small enough to qualify? There are right. some size requirements associated number of employees. You can't have more than, I think it was several hundred employees to qualify. And then sort of lastly, all you had to do is kind of spend the money. And it was like right. sub 1%, not secured loan. And basically the whole thing became forgivable. So, you know, all you had to do is, you know, keep your employees on your payroll. And basically for the next eight weeks, that would be effectively paid for by the government. Right. And so the need for capital, and, and, and I would say up until the last two or three weeks ago, stopped focusing on capital raising and were more focused on getting the operations right. And I think everyone was running twice as hard to get half as far in terms of, you know, literally like collecting money from Mm -hmm. clients and just trying to run their operations remotely. Whereas in the last few weeks now, we're starting to see a pickup from people who are interested in either, you know, going to market if they're looking to some people, we had started like a sale process of, you know, to sell their business prior to coronavirus and we put the processes on hold. And so, you know, these processes were restarted in the last few weeks as business owners were able to sort of carve out the time to, to move forward. In many cases now, we are talking to business owners who see, you know, the equivalent of a once in a lifetime opportunity to make acquisitions. If they have access to capital, you know, there's a great opportunity for maybe the first time in nearly a decade for buyers to acquire a business in a market that's more friendly to them than to a mm-hmm. seller, both from a, you know, from a purchase price standpoint and also for, you know, a form of consideration. What I mean by that is, you know, if you're a seller today, you're probably willing to accept more seller note and or earnout 
because of the uncertainty, you know, of the market, it's a reason, a more reasonable request in today's market. And one sellers have to consider pretty seriously because sort of fewer, at least at the moment, there are still fewer buyers that are out there looking to acquire businesses now. So it's those people who are kind of taking a contrarian approach and seeing the opportunity to buy cheaply, you know, we're getting, we're seeing a lot of that from folks who are performing. And I think that's going to pay huge dividends for them. I think, you know, there's the opportunity to buy, you know, really sort of reduce some of the risks that are inherent with M&A activity in a more normalized environment. Yeah. And for a seller, it might be a creative solution to, you know, if you have a longer earn out, at least you reduce that uncertainty in terms of your business. You're employed, you get to realize some of the vision of your business, but you've cashed out a bit. You're not wondering if you're going to actually make it through the pandemic. And actually, what's the wherewithal you have post pandemic, right? 100%. I think, you know, oftentimes we speak to business owners whose businesses were, you know, pre coronavirus were performing reliably. Right. And so like they didn't see much risk, you know, often we'll run an analysis for business owners and we'll sort of, we'll sort of show that, you know, based on selling your business today, receiving capital gains treatment for that, you know, lump sum and then investing it conservatively in some combination of the, you know, the overall stock market mm-hmm. and fixed income, you know, balanced portfolio. And you compare that to continuing to operate your business paying ordinary income taxes and then investing the cash flow you pull out in the same manner. Like in many cases, the analysis is sort of shown based on the attractive multiples that buyers have been willing to pay that it, you'd have to operate your business for upward of, you know, let's call it 15 years yeah. in order, and with a little bit of modest growth, but without any fall off in order to sort of break even mm-hmm. from a personal cash off the table standpoint. Versus selling today and taking that risk, all the risk kind of off the table, you know, and by the way, I mean, there's still risk, of course, in investing some of the proceeds of a sale into the stock market. However, you know, it's certainly that risk is, is greatly reduced in a balanced portfolio of liquid public companies and fixed income versus holding, you know, having a concentration risk yeah. in a yeah. private business with without really liquidity that's subject to ups and downs that, you know, are difficult to predict. So anyway, I think nowadays, as you, you know, to your question, sort of when you look at this environment, maybe the multiples have come down and maybe the answer isn't 15 years anymore. It could be 10. Right. It depends on the industry. So I'm just generalizing. Sure. But a lot of owners sort of look at themselves in the mirror and say, man, that was close. And I think I would be interested in at least having a conversation and, and maybe, you know, having introduced us to a few folks to, you know, absent running a full-blown process. I definitely agree. I think people are much more open to having those conversations, understanding what's out there. And to your point, I think, you know, there are less buyers. And so if somebody actually says, hey, I'm interested in that company, it's definitely worth paying attention given the current climate. So what's going on with PE firm? Are they still doing this, you know, buying platform companies, bolting on? Like what's going on in terms of what's happening in private equity? Well, I mean, I think it's a little bit dependent upon the particular private equity group. But overall, you know, the folks that we have spoken to across the middle market, generally speaking, they continue to be active in terms of assessing opportunities. They continue to have 
you know, cumulatively, you know, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of dry powder that they are seeking to invest into middle market businesses. Mm -hmm. They're seeing a climate like we just talked about a moment ago. The thing about private equity is that they will generally invest through good times and bad. Mm -hmm. Just like any other buyer, they will be opportunistic in terms of price that they're willing to pay. They will be, you know, also just trying to get you know, the seller to uh, roll some maybe more equity than they may the have historically and, you know, in a recapitalization scenario, mm-hmm. maybe roll some seller debt and earn out as well. But they're doing deals. You know, we have no expectation that that will stop. I think they're focused, you know, their preference certainly is you've got to be able to demonstrate to them the business that they're purchasing will not need a liquidity infusion. So they do get, so in other words, when they buy your company or buy control of your company, they're going to want to understand that whatever they're paying for the business plus putting into the business, if anything, the business needs a cash infusion, is that's all taking place at close. And that there isn't going to be, you know, six months where they are forced to decide between throwing in good money after bad or walking away from the investment. So, So in this environment, it's critical to get their attention, to be able to demonstrate that, you know, that you have a fairly high certainty and predictability around the business generating cash, you know, and in what time frame that'll happen, or making sure that you and you have enough cash on hand to um, bridge up until that point. So a healthy business, right? One that's sustainable if you get a cash infusion and can continue to scale and grow. Generally healthy, I think in this environment, people understand, you know, again, that that 10 or 15% decline yeah. is not something that is going to be a game, right, you know. Right. It's not going to ding you. It's not going to be a killer, deal killer. There's this notion that, you know, maybe this is the time to potentially merge with another company. You know, you kind of, they're bigger is better. You kind of weather the storm. What's your perspective on that? Have you seen that work? Is that something... Yeah, I think that you probably see that more now in any tough environment than you do in a more normalized one. Because if you've got two businesses that, you know, are both doing okay, but not great, you know, they're, and by, maybe by putting the businesses together, first of all, uh, larger companies are almost always more valuable than smaller ones, all right. else are equal. Yeah. So, you know, the opportunity to sort of combine, let's say, two $20 million revenue companies to create a $40 million revenue company, all else being equal, that business should be worth more than just the one plus one because larger companies trade for higher multiples. Got it. A lot of private equity buyers, that's a key part of the strategy is like, we're just going to acquire, you know, we're going to acquire a portfolio company and then do a bunch of small acquisitions where we can pay relatively little for those. And then, you know, I might pay 10 times for the portfolio company, and then I'll pay five times for all these little companies that sort of look like the miniature versions of what I bought. And then I'll get, when I go to sell, I'll get like a 12 times multiple, Mm -hmm. all of it. Right. You just create a lot of value just through doing that. And that doesn't even take into consideration the fact that you don't need both businesses. You probably don't need two offices. You probably don't need to, I don't want to pick on financial people because I'm one. You don't need two controllers or CFOs. And so there's also cost that can be saved. And in this environment, that actually becomes, 
you know, even the larger driver of merger activity where nobody needs to come up with any cash. Right. And, you know, you're just trying to maybe create, you know, something that is going to generate more cumulative cash than either could generate sort of on their own. Yep. And I also think that, you know, when you, with ideal candidates at times for those types of transactions, and Adam, you and I have talked about it, it's like, you can't go from dating to getting married. It's companies that you might have partnerships with already. It's forward or backwards integration, vertical integration, you know, because people always say, well, do you think I should merge? And it's kind of like, well, do you guys know each other? Do you have, so, right? It's not one plus one overnight. And I think like those conversations could start happening now, if that's something that's on the table. Yeah. I mean, it's not that we don't see opportunities for folks to acquire businesses or merge with businesses that they don't know well. That's where, you know, having an intermediary, an intermediary is helpful, by the way, even if you know inside and out. This is going to sound self-serving, but all the investment (laughs) bankers listening will like it. Investment bankers can kind of, you know, help flatten the speed bumps on transactions and help sort of push through. And it's natural for business owners to, you know, to try to push for the best terms they can get. But ultimately, you know, many aspects of M&A activity is zero sum. So Mm -hmm. if somebody's getting something, someone else has to give it. And so these conversations can be difficult. They can be even risky. Right. And so sort of having someone that can float these concepts and, you know, like, and help to, at the end of the day, right, the two business owners in a merger need to live with one another. Right. And so I've seen deals before where that, you know, there was so much bad will created through the deal process and folks sort of got through it. But then, you know, when the first thing went wrong on the other side, you know, you're, you've already created some, you've had some difficult conversations and animosity through the process that could have been avoided. So Adam, in closing, if you had to leave, you know, some constructive thoughts for business owners, particularly, what thoughts would you leave them with in terms of how to think about their business? Yeah, I mean, it is business dependent. And, you know, we've started to even run some roundtables where, because again, like, I'm a financial guy, and I'm I'm a transactional based person. I think a lot of the issues that business owners are focused on now are away from transactional based and more toward operational. Mm-hmm. So we're just as sort of a, you know, a client relationship building exercise with clients and prospects, both like hosting, you know, round tables where they can speak with one another about, we usually pick a topic or two, but then it'll kind of break out into a free form discussion on whatever issues that are top of mind for them. And, uh, I would say, you know, from an investment banker's point, advising a, a mid-sized company, you know, if you have the luxury, take the time to that you, the excess time that you typically don't have at this point, week 10 into the pandemic and invest it into longer term strategic initiatives that will yeah. pay dividends when we come out of this. Consider being opportunistic with new initiatives, whether they be organic or M&A because uh, I think there's a lot of attractive deals to be had. Um, and there is capital to fund those types of projects as well for the right for the businesses that are performing. So, you know, look, it's, uh, I think that you're going to see some companies that are, that stay focused. Yeah. And that's the key. You know, the folk, the guys who stay focused, you know, are going to be the folks that come through this stronger than ever. I look forward to working with companies like that. <laughs> me too. 100%. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for joining me. All right. Thanks, Seema. Talk take to you care. soon. All right. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. 
This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.